Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, this Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the very last day of January 2024. This is going to be lecture number 19 in our leukotriene series, which comprises the biomedical portrait number eight. This may be the last lecture. Uh, depends on how far we get, but I think I'm at that point of closure. So um, let's just get right into it. <clears throat> now, let me uh, go back and again talk about membrane lipids. We've been talking about leukotrienes as these oxygenated fatty acids, which of course they are, and we've been describing all their biological activity in both binding to receptors, the modification of cytokine, uh, transport, enzyme transport, cellular differentiation and activation, all of it linked to some kind of immune response, typically. And the classical feature we're talking about with leukotrienes, particularly the peptidoleukotrienes, which have gotten a lot of uh, showtime in the research literature, are the peptidoleukotrienes, those that are initially covalently bound to glutathione and then via peptidase brought down just to be cystineal leukotrienes. And remember, we talked about different receptors. And then last lecture, I believe, was the first time I mentioned to you, which is fine because leukotriene biology is very fascinating. But the very last lecture is when I started saying, well, what happens when you remove the fatty acid from the preformed phospholipid, such as arachidonate or icosapentaenoate or docosahexanoate or docosapentaenoate, and you leave a lysophospholipid in the membrane. And that got us into the discussion of cholesterol in the membrane, membrane fluidity, and we started to get into a little bit about the enthalpy of small space differentiations relative to pressure, temperature gradients within the plasma membrane that would be altered significantly by the generation of eicosanoids, including the leukotrienes, whether or not they remain there in situ or they're generated in the nuclear um, space or in the nuclear envelope, like some of them are, we know that there is an alteration of phospholipid metabolism. And then there is, th therefore, a concomitant effect on membrane fluidity. And this not only will occur in situ where the uh, particular eicosanoid might be generated, but throughout the entire process of the signal transduction cascade in the cell. Because remember, we were talking about the entire process of the MAP kinases, the MAP in particular pathway, leading to cellular proliferation upon an inflammatory response induced by leukotriene. And then, of course, the key uh, cytokine player in all this was interleukin-33 and its specific receptor, all of which are under transcriptional, translational, and post-translational regulation to mediate the uh, inflammatory response in the lung, such as during a, a particular um, condition known as asthma, chronic asthma, and then acute uh, um, occurrences of asthma uh, in, the, in the pulmonary system that can lead to high morbidity and even mortality. We also started talking about the use of NSAIDs, which would then alter the ratios of leukotrienes to other eicosanoids, 
because of the inhibition of cyclooxygenase enzymes, PGS enzymes. All right. So I'm just re upping you on everything we're up to, we got to at this point. And I do that all the time because it's been a few days since we had a lecture because it took me a while to write more. Um, and of course, I do other things, but also because just as if we were in lecture in a lecture hall at the university, I would give you a recap because it's always important to come back where we were and then proceed. So if we were just doing a three-hour lecture, which, of course, I'm capable of doing, and I have history of it, then we wouldn't be recapping, but I probably would every hour because we would be taking a break. These are only half-hour lectures, so this is uh, easy street, right? Of course it is. Okay. Now, the occurrence of cholesterol and even cholesterol products, other prenolipids in the membrane alters the thermotropic phase behavior of the phospholipids and the sphingolipids. And I mentioned this before, the cholesterol can induce what's known as an intermediate state, particularly when we're talking about phospholipids, with which it interacts increasing the fluidity of the hydrocarbon chains below and decreasing the fluidity above the gel to liquid crystalline phase transition temperature. Now, I told you why that phase transition temperature is important, even in homeothermic organisms like in human, because cholesterol is then altering that shift between gel phase and liquid crystalline phase, where there's more fluidity, if you want to consider continuum fluidity, in such a way that pH, ionic strength, and pressure differential, as well as any chemical alteration of the phospholipid endomembranous or plasma membrane macromolecular dynamic, can lead to alterations in that fluid dynamic. Because cholesterol, as I just mentioned to you, can have an effect of either ordering the acyl chains, and that's to do the cyclopentanophenethene ring structure, or depending on where you are at that transition and the number of double bonds in the fatty acids associated with phosphoglycerolipids or sphingolipids, you're going to then change key features of the intramembranous chemical signaling capacity. And that chemical signaling is all important for what? The immune response. So that's why I'm going here, you see. Plus, it's essential that you understand something about <clears throat> membrane biochemistry. If you're doing anything about lipids and leukotrains are definitely card-carrying lipids. You have to understand there's going to be a major effect whenever lipids are generated <clears throat> or when they modify by going through membranes. And those membranes play the absolutely critical role in living systems. Absolutely critical role. Right? Not just because you have self on the inside and non-self on the outside, you know, the barrier mechanism. Everything that happens in terms of communication in biology has to do with membrane, uh, either endomembranous systems or, of course, the plasma membrane. All right. Now, PC cholesterol mixtures. Remember, these are synthetic mixtures that have been used for these studies using such techniques as the conventional DSC, desitometry scanning calorimetry. 
have shown that they're that the following, okay? The presence of increasing concentrations of cholesterol will broaden the gel to liquid crystalline phase transition of those model phosphatidylcholine membranes. And you're going to get a reduced delta H calc. Now, that's an enthalpy measure. I'm going to explain to you what that is in a moment. Now, whether or not there is a direction in the shift of the TM, it's the critical temperature wherein the membrane becomes liquid crystalline, exactly dependent upon the concentration of cholesterol to abolish that transition has not been worked out in living systems for the various reasons I've already gone over. But looking at different kinds of artificial lipid and lipid uh, membrane systems, such as dimeristyl um, phosphatidylcholine or dipalmidoyl phosphatidylcholine or diolophosphatidylcholine. Again, this is going to have to do with chain length and also with degree of unsaturation of fatty acids. It does appear that cholesterol has a very significant role in all of that phase transition modification that we would normally interpret to have significant effects on biological membrane uh, function. Okay, that's the simplest way to put it. So, what is this delta H? Okay, so again, this is important for you to know as well. If you're going to do membrane biochemistry, that's what apparently we're doing this late morning. Enthalpy, by definition. What is it? One way of looking at it mathematically, it's the sum of the internal energy of the system and the product of the system's volume and pressure. So the ups, the straight up equation is H equals U plus PV. So U stands for the internal energy, of course, small P for pressure, and capital V is for volume. Volume plays a major role in biomembrane mechanics. So I want you to notice the second part closely re re resembles equations that sound like gas laws because that's where they come from, okay? Because these are pressure volume associations, which is absolutely essential to understand biomembranes, okay? That means that temperature is going to have an effect obviously, but temperature and chemical modification can sometimes work in a collinear way. So raising the temperature or doing what? Altering the pressure can have the same effect on the enthalpy, right? Yeah, stand now, right? Now, do you want to calculate the change in enthalpy? You have to consider, the only way to do it really is to, is to have two states, an initial and then some proximal final, okay? Now, you can assume that the pressure is constant during the course of the reaction, but it's not going to be constant subsequent to the alteration of the membrane lipid dynamic, or topodynamics as I call them. So the change in enthalpy can be described as delta H, equals U2 minus U1 plus P 
times V2 minus V1. You can simplify that equation, obviously, algebraically. Delta H equals delta U plus P times delta V. And again, U2 and V2, those are the internal energy and volume of the products of the reaction. That means the altered membrane after arachidonic acid has been removed, from example, from the two-position of phosphoglycerolipid, and then has been oxygenated to a leukotriene. Okay. U1 and V1 are the internal energy and volume of the reactants. And the reactants is, again, that membrane now intact right before PLA2 is activated. Yeah. All right. So delta U is the change in internal energy. Delta V is the change in volume. And delta H is, since it's strict, the change in enthalpy. Okay. So the standard enthalpy of formation for a reaction is delta H star, and that equals the summation of delta HF of the products minus delta HF of the reactants. So the delta H of the reaction is the standard and it'll be change of the formation. And how is that expressed in terms of units? Those are kilojoules. The delta H of formation, that is of the products, is the sum of the standard enthalpies of the formation of the products, and that's again expressed now in kilojoule per mole, because now you're dealing with products. Likewise, the delta HF star of the reactants, because these are all standards, so I'm saying star, right? is the sum of the standard enthalpies of formation of the reactants. Again, what's it going to be expressed in? Because you're dealing with, with uh, chemical structures and, and a certain quantity, kilojoule per mole. Now, if you're paying attention to all this, you've noticed that the delta H formation of products and the delta H formation of reactants have slightly different units, as I just said, than the delta H of the reaction. Now, I'm going to tell you why in more chemical detail, right? It's because you need to multiply them by the number of moles of the reactant and the product. So that is the coefficient before the compound in the reaction. All right? But even before you, you do that event, you can ask how do you calculate standard enthalpy of formation for each individual player. And the easiest way to do that, of course, is to use a standard enthalpy of formation table. Now, that's used for many chemical reactions. Now, step back. Think about what we're talking about. In straightforward thermodynamics in the chemistry class, we'd be able to look at different chemical reactions, you know, the generation of a salt or an oxide, whatever kind of uh, chemical reaction you want to look at. We could talk about enthalpy, standard enthalpies, formation, right? Of course we can. But think about the membrane. The membrane doesn't have one molecular species we are encountering. No, this is a macromolecular structure. And unlike the macromolecular compounds normally discussed in biochemistry, like polypeptides, DNA, or RNA, the macromolecular structure, which is the term I use for the complex membrane, has 
multiple heterogeneous structures that are sometimes covalently associated, but often not, but are held there by hydrophobic forces. So you have to think all of, go back and think about van der Waals forces. Go back and think about how the whole interaction between one substance and another is, is, isn't simply one of non-association because of a covalent bond or non-association because of a hydrogen bond, which both do occur in the membrane, but also what happens to the various enthalpies and entropies when you're discussing the hydrophobic effect. Okay. And that also is significantly bound up in our understanding of the classical gas laws and the movement of different solutes through different permeable or, or partially permeable membranes, right? If you had a good uh, physical chemistry course, you went through all of this. Now think about those are all standard features. And now consider the biological membrane. Remember what I'm always saying of the biological system. It is an event ontology. In fact, everything in nature is an event ontology. But let's just look at the living system. Those membranes are not just these solid features in the cell, which stand there as some kind of barrier like a wall. I mean, plants have cell walls. Most bacteria have cell walls. Fungi have cell walls. Animal cells do not have cell walls. You know, the membranes usually not called a wall, although people think of them that way. They got the arterial wall, right? They're not a wall, though. Membranes are highly biologically active, and they're not even in one particular three-dimensional space. Now add time. They are fluid. So the membrane is actually always moving. It's an event. And all the lipids are, are moving in a, some kind of Brownian and non-Brownian motion relative to the, the various currents, electrical currents, and then chemical currents moving in and out of the membrane. So these membranes are themselves living structures. They're not alive on their own, but they're part of the living system. Without membranes, there is no living system. Can't exist without a membrane, right? So that means the membrane is in constant dynamic and kinetic motion constant right it it's dynamic why what do we mean by dynamic what is the membrane doing to the system itself and then kinetic what is the system doing to the membrane you'll go back to your pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics right i always like those definitions so you see what i'm saying the membrane fluidity alteration is going to change the entire um activity of the cell in which that membrane fluidity is changing. And remember, too, the membrane is not just all changing in terms of its fluid dynamics, only where there's an occurrence of an event, such as phospholipase A2 activity in some particular domain of the membrane. The rest of the membrane isn't going through that same kind of isotropic, pleiotropic, fluid dynamic flux but only in situ where it's occurring. 
And then maybe adjacent to that, the modification of the hydrophobic associations and maybe the covalent and maybe the ionic associations of those membrane components via all the different types of membrane lipids and, of course, all the different polypeptides. And that means all of the what? All of the amino acid R groups that are embedded in the membrane. Yeah. All of those different helical structures, those secondary structures you might find in the membrane are also altering. So when something like we say, well, signal transduction of the epidermal growth factor binds to the receptor, and then all this downstream processing occurs and you get, for example, the effect of an RNA binding motif protein on the alteration of the stability of RNA in the nucleus relative to its transport or its splicing or its capping or its translatability. All of that is linked to that initial event in the plasma membrane. So all the membranous systems are interacting with that one occurrence, such as a signal, such as a pathogen-associated molecular pattern, and then a response, a danger-associated molecular pattern, moving through toll-like receptors, for example. The entire cell is changing. It's, it's, it's altering its entire communication network all the way from the external features of what's going on in the plasma membrane, all the way into the nuclear membrane, and then ultimately transcription factors and controlling gene expression. Right? This is not a, a separated thing. These, these aren't compartmentalized in the sense that, well, then this goes on, then this goes on. Yes, there's a sequence of events, but they're all perfectly integrated and interwoven. Or the word I like to use is recombined. Recombined because they are once combined in various states of, say, hydrophobic interaction, then they are altered and then they recombine, right? And that's what's always going on in the cell, not just during a certain signaling, but throughout the entire life cycle of an individual cell until it replicates or until it can't replicate any longer and starts to senesce, right? So these are very profound things that you have to consider when you're thinking about what's going on simply just with the leukotrienes. And that, and I'm not saying simply like that's a simple thing. It isn't at all. But think about now going back to this innocuous, you know, you go to the, to the uh, drugstore and you buy ibuprofen or you buy aspirin and, and you take it and you put it in your refrigerator and you have aspirin when you have a headache or you have a joint pain. We take ibuprofen for a joint pain, back pain. Think of the effect of that drug on this system. What cells are being affected? And the chronic use of something like that and the alteration of normal regulation. All those micro features we're talking about simply with things like standard rates of formation enthalpically of given uh, the formation of different products. Those products can all be individual biochemical state functions of what's within the membrane, all occurring in a synchronous, absolutely essentially um, composite and potency-promotive vectorial teleology. Potency meaning you have to have a potent signal transduction for it to work. Right. Yeah, ultimately, maybe to, to cause transcription of something, 
some suite of genes like Proclemptor or Sally, because like interleukin 33 or its receptor or the peptidoleukotriene peptidases or any of the other enzymes, all the lipoxidases 5, 15, 12, et cetera, or all the PGSs and all the different possible mycosinones being generated. Yeah. But the whole system then has to go right back essentially to essentially where it was right before the signal transduction occurred. Now, it doesn't just cycle back. Nothing in any sequence of events that is temporal ever goes back exactly to what it was before. You know, the seasons don't really just show us cycles, the four seasons. The years aren't just a cycle. This year is not last year. It will never be next year, right? This year is really difficult to represent temporally or this moment or this nanosecond or microsecond because we're always thinking about what was before and what was after. And what's, when something is happening, we have to measure the change. We can't measure the happening itself because there are too many phenomena that are interacting that are profiling the alteration of all the other interactions in such a way to conform uniformly to the process that needs that teleology to be followed through, such as signaling there is an infection process going on. Maybe, right? If you can depend upon the surveillance signaling from you know, circulating innate uh, leukocytes, if you meaning the cell, right? The endothelial cell. So there are always to be checks and balances too. When, do, when does the entire tissue respond or when does it hold back and wait for more signaling? And often that's a quantitative thing, right? But you know, I've argued before that when you change quantitative um, measurements enough and, and quantitative measurements are being um, attuned to and accessed by a living system, then there is a qualitative change which follows, right? So those are kind of arbitrary lines between quantitative and qualitative. At least that's how I see it. I think that's how the living system sees it as well. So, okay, so let's let's see what else we want to talk about here. I just want to get this membrane um, lecture uh, into your into your uh, central nervous system because it's so important for you to understand overall what's going on in any of these biological systems. Okay, so the effect of cholesterol on this thermotropic phase behavior is going to depend on fatty acid composition. And in particular, it's going to depend on chain length and on the number of double bonds. So you know, that's the difference between saturated and unsaturated fatty acids. And also the positioning of the double bonds. That's why we get so worked up over discussing omega-3 versus omega-6 versus omega-9 fatty acids. The it's specific placement of the double bond, right, where it's located in the fatty acid, changes all of its thermotropic properties. So all that has to be known in situ in the entire complex membrane. Now, we can do a compositional analysis of erythrocytes or, you know, hepatocytes, and, and we can determine all the different fatty acid composition of all the different lipid classes. We can use HPLC or gas chromatography associated with mass spec, and we can do all that. 
but we don't know the real organization in situ. We don't have the real organization because the macromolecular structure known as the membrane is not something that is simply sequenced like a polypeptide, amino terminus carboxylimus, or like a DNA molecule, five prime to three prime, or an RNA molecule, same kite, you see? So without all that information, we're using these artificial membranes to get a, a good understanding of the thermodynamics, chemical thermodynamics. And also then we have all these biological studies and even clinical studies to understand what happens during perturbations of signaling responses. Okay? So let me see where I'm at time-wise here. I think we're getting pretty close to the end. Um, sorry, I have to switch back to look at my internal clock. Yeah, we're going to stop here. I think next time, we only have about a minute, so I don't want to go over right now, but I think next time what I'm going to do is go go back to just straightforward biochemistry, get back into the discussion of what's going on in the membrane with aspirin, and then finish off this biomedical portrait. So hopefully we can do that just next lecture. I've got new ideas of what I want to do next. I'm already working on it. And um, I'm glad that we did 20, almost 20 lectures now on leukotrienes because um, I think that they are probably largely not discussed at all in most uh, biochemistry uh, lecture halls. Certainly not the undergraduate or even the graduate or even at the uh, medical school or a pharmacy school or a vet science school. But you get it here at Authentic Biochemistry. Okay. So Tuesday afternoon. Uh, this is, uh, no, excuse me. It's Wednesday afternoon, 31st of January, 2024. Dr. Dan Guerra saying bye for now.